It's October 12th. Here in Colombia, the sun is rising at 7.27 a.m. I wake my children for school in darkness. The dawn touches the early color in some of our trees. And the sun is setting at 6.54 p.m. We have less than 12 hours of light now, but still, the day has spaciousness. I'm Claire Houle, a writer and instructional designer at the Center for Teaching Excellence at Midlands Technical College here in Columbia, South Carolina. Join me as we once again branch out following the roots and filaments of teaching and connection here at the college. What is the place we allow for failure in higher education? How could we better understand and engage with failure in our work with students and in our professional lives? This is Instructional Ecology. We passed the threshold of our new season of entering the underworld of higher education. Today, we've left the sunlight and surface behind and we're in the dark. It's not the clear darkness of night. It's the smoky darkness of obscurity and confusion. It's a darkness full of unseen barriers and sharp edges and surprising jolts and drops. Today, we begin with a fundamental issue with failure that makes it so radioactive in higher education, the emotion surrounding failure. The feeling of failure challenges those who teach because our role when a student is in the emotion of failure becomes uncertain. What do we do? How much could or should we do for or with a student who is in failure? What is too much? What is too little? Is our presence, actions, or words harmful rather than helpful? We all ask, what do I say? What do I do? Often when people are gripped by emotion, they are unable to say what would help in that moment. They can only feel. And so we are in the dark with them. But are we together? What does or should a witness to failure do? What is the ethical act? What is the prudent response? What is the constructive choice? I don't know, but I want to know. I have a vivid memory, now decades old, of having to gently tell a young student that he was unable to pass the class given his grades and excessive absences, all of which we had talked about before as the semester wore on. But I think he had hoped. He said nothing. I reminded him he could repeat the course when he was ready. He could try again. Silence. His eyes welled with tears. We looked at each other. We sat quietly. Finally, he rose. I sincerely wished him good luck in his future. I never saw him again. Did I do right? Was there more I could have said? Could I have said even less? Should I have turned my gaze away? In that moment, could I have offered him some further guidance or hope or courage? I don't know. I still remember his name. So let's stay there in that moment, in that aura of the moment, the feeling of failure as it radiates outward to encompass those around. Like all those who enter hell as tourists, we need a guide. Today, our guide will be from MTC's Counseling Services. I ask her to speak through the darkness of this experience, to parse it for us, to give us perspective in our work with students. As we begin to face into the substance of this season, where better to start than with someone who sits with emotions of students all day, every day? Here we are, together again, facing the feeling of failure. Hi, my name is Centrella Gitt. I am a counselor on the airport campus in the Office of Counseling and Career Services. And I joined the MTC family in February of 2023. Centrella, I am so pleased that you're going to take time to talk to us because I feel like uh, faculty work with students all of the time, but oftentimes lack the confidence and surety of expertise about 
how to engage around the emotion of failure. So I would love for you to ground us a little bit in your background before you came to the college, since you've had some experience uh, specifically in a lot of the issues that can surround issues of learning, being a student, and of the failure that might be a part of it. Okay, well, thank you so much. I am um, so glad to be a part of this discussion, uh, as I feel that it's definitely um, much needed and something I'm very passionate about. So my journey getting here has been a little long. Um, most recently, I was a K-12 counselor. So I'm K-12 um, certified as a school counselor. And I worked with a really unique population of students um, from 2013 until 2023. Actually, I got here to the college in February of this year. And so the students I worked with had moderate to severe intellectual disabilities, and they actually were, um, were learning housed at a separate facility for students who, most of my students had behavioral issues that could not be accommodated on a regular campus. But I did have the pleasure of working with regular ed students um, as well with a combined program that we had um, at my school. So while there, and like I said, I definitely just passionate about, I'm passionate about learning, I'm passionate about education, but I also really enjoy working with, I guess, your non-traditional students or, or individuals who have unique needs. Um, so I actually, um, prior to becoming a school counselor, actually, I was on the track um, for becoming a private mental health therapist. Um, so I took all the coursework to be able to do that. And that's something I'm still um, pursuing as well now to get licensure. Um, while working with my students, again, a lot of them were diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. And so I went through all of the training and supervision to become a board certified behavior analyst. Um, I am trained in nonviolent crisis intervention. And I um, train staff members on how to be proactive, build relationships, and to de-escalate crises. Um, I also have training um, with nonviolent crisis intervention with um, Crisis Prevention Institute, specializing in autism spectrum disorder and um, advanced physical situations. So I'm trained in a, a lot of different areas. Um, as well as mental health first aid. So I'm a youth mental health first aid trainer. Now that I'm at the college and working with adults, I plan to expand that um, to be an adult mental health um, first aid trainer because I like to be able to work um, in conjunction with you know, my colleagues and be able to provide support and additional training um, skills and resources for them. So that is a little bit, oh, trauma-informed care. That's something else that I was trained in. So you, you bring such a rich um, collection of learning and experience. And I'm just so taken with the idea of uh, mental health first aid. Uh, that It's so clear to me how that could be so useful. And I'm really interested in the fact that, uh, speaking of first aid or, or maybe first responder might even be a great term here is, I know that uh, when students drop below a two-point GPA, that triggers a process that counseling is a part of. Could you tell me procedurally what happens when the student goes below that threshold and you get bought into the process? Initially, when students drop below the 2.0 GPA, what happens at that point is they receive a letter and it does not actually come from my office or even to our office, but it just lets the student know that they are on academic probation. So it puts them on alert and um, lets them know that unless they bring um, their GPA up, their cumulative GPA up, GPA up to a 2.0 grade point average, or at least have a 2.0 for that following um, semester, they are placed on academic suspension. Once they are placed on academic suspension, that is where the counseling office may get involved if that student, and we hope that they will, 
um, petition for readmission from suspension. So that is when um, our office gets involved. That student will initiate that process um, by um, completing that petition. And we meet with them just to discuss the factors that led to the suspension. Um, and we, you know, so not just the academic piece, but a lot of it is getting into, you know, some personal issues, which is something that we see often. So that is how we get involved. But in saying that, <laughs> to me, what I, the part that I think is, is huge is the being proactive and maybe just kind of the missing piece of having those interventions in place when that student initially falls um, below that 2.0 grade point average. Okay, it triggers a letter. Um, and the letter is, you know, an alert, as you said. And alert is such a nice word. It feels different from warning. <laughs> but you and I both know that, you know, it, despite our care, perhaps, in crafting, you know, using the word alert instead of warning, that there is a lot of emotion around the risk or threat of failure. And then, of course, the failure itself, if it happens, right? They're on the threshold of it and, you know, they tip over into failure. Could you tell us a little bit about what you understand about the emotion of failure? So when I think about failure, because I have found myself in situations um, when I was in school where I felt that I was failing or that I was a failure. And so it can be shameful, um, very shameful. Um, you know, it's a guilty feeling. A lot of times it's feeling hopeless because even though you know kind of what you need to do, you don't know how. You know, oftentimes we don't know how. So I can remember receiving one of those letters when I was an undergrad and I knew that I needed to bring my GPA up, but I didn't know how because, the, you know, my reasons were a lot of personal issues and things like that. Um, and just trying to, I didn't have, I guess, the skill set at that time or the know-how to be able to balance, you know, work and family issues and, and as well as school. So for me as well, and like I said, the embarrassment for me was really, really more prevalent because I was always a great student. So, you know, in high school, I was a great student. And so when people would ask me about college, they wouldn't say, oh, how is it going? They would say, oh, I know you have a 4.0. Oh, I know you're knocking it out the park. Oh, I know you're not struggling. So it didn't allow for me to be able to say, hey, I need help. You know, where can I go for help? So that in my personal experience, um, you know, are some of the emotions around failure. And even, and I'm not going to say whether it is was real or just my perception, but I even felt that oh, my professors may not even really want to talk to me because I'm not a good student. You know, coming from elementary school and middle school, high school, the teachers rallied around the students who were, you know, really successful. And they were, you know, but <laughs> so I'm like, oh, now that I'm on the other side and I'm failing this class, do they really want to sit down and talk to me? Are they going to help me? Is it okay if I approach them? So all of those things, you know, emotionally, it, it definitely can take a toll on you for sure. I think last season we talked about the tyranny of loving expectations, right? The, when, when people who love you are so certain that you're doing great, that there is a difficulty in that too, because you say to yourself, I, I shouldn't need help. Mm -hmm. uh, and that gets us into all of these, these a different kind of difficulty. But I think that that where you brought us to is when you said, I'm, I'm not really sure if I was right that the professors didn't want to speak to me. And I, I think that that's something important about failure is it becomes difficult to discern what is actually happening versus what is simply coming from our own subjective feeling. Yes. If you are intensely feeling shame or guilt or fear, it makes it quite difficult to make good, clear decisions. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how those emotions can or do affect student decision-making when they are in the emotion of failure? 
so right. Like you just said, and what I was touching on is you project those negative feelings about yourself onto other people, because the reality is I can't say that I've ever had a professor who turned me away or, you know, even when it comes to nonverbals, if I went to talk to them, I mean, they weren't, you know, rolling their eyes or appearing to not want to talk to me, but it's because I was feeling not so good about myself. Um, I projected that to other people. And what I realized is that my mental health um, and people need to, I think, really understand that you don't have to have a diagnosed mental illness to not be in a mentally healthy state. And so once I started not doing as well in school, I realized that um, looking back on it mentally, you know, I wasn't healthy at the time. And I did. And so when you are in a state of anxiety, um, when you were feeling depressed, oftentimes you're not able to make those clear, those clear and healthy decisions. And so the things that seem to be, for lack of a better word, common sense, like, okay, I'm not doing well, so I should study more. That makes sense. But when I was in a state of extreme anxiousness, I couldn't focus the study. So even when I sat down, it's like I just couldn't do it. Um, So a lot of times it does affect your, you know, your decision making or when you just don't feel well enough sometimes maybe to even get out of bed, you know, because you're now. So it's almost like you're you're on this wheel. (laughs) It's almost like the hamster going around on a wheel. And it's like, you know, I'm I'm not feeling well about things because I'm failing school, but I'm failing school because I'm not feeling so good about things. And we're just going around and around and around and then not, you know, even being able to think clearly enough at that moment to reach out for help, to even figure out where to reach out for help. So that that cycle of failure simply picks up speed. And so, and the process of course is, you know, that first there's probation and then there's suspension, but then you're allowed to return. However, if you haven't addressed the root causes Mm -hmm. for failure, what's going to happen? You are going to continue to fail. And that is one of the biggest things that I think, I guess people don't realize is until we get to the root of the problem, right? You're not going to solve that problem because if in fact, I'm not doing well in my classes because I don't have good study habits and I don't know how to study, I can be readmitted, but I'm going to do the same thing I did before because I haven't, I haven't gained any skills. I haven't done anything differently. If it's an issue of you know, like I've, I've seen several students, several students um, who are struggling with mental health issues. But if you have not treated that depression and you're still as depressed when you return, you know, things are going to look the same. And so I think one of the things that when I say we, I mean, we as a whole, people need to realize is really, you know, looking at those underlying causes. Um, When I think about my ABA background, we talk about um, the functions, (laughs) you know, the functions of behavior. And so thinking about that, you know, if, if, if you don't meet those basic needs, you're going to be right back where you are. So the student is not, unfortunately, you know, not going to be successful if you have not gotten to the root of the problem. I'm thinking too about um, the kinds of support that we offer at the college. There's academic support, mm-hmm. right? Which can be, you know, the academic success center, tutoring, study skills, um, uh, essential skills like time management, uh, advising, making sure you're in the right program. But then there are non-academic supports because we know that many of our students, m- many, most, if not all of their challenges aren't academic challenges. They are non-academic challenges. What can you give us some insight into what you know about um, non-academic reasons for suspension, failure, um, and those kinds of outcomes for our students? 
So when I um, reviewed the data based on the students who I met with who had been suspended, um, over 70% of them listed reasons surrounding either mental health or family obligations. So, um, you know, just recently I spoke with someone and the situation was mom was diagnosed with cancer. I had to, you know, go out of town with my mother for treatments. And so I'm missing classes, childcare issues. You know, you, we are, you know, working with adults. And so it's, Hey, you know, I, I don't have childcare. I can't come to school if I don't have someone to keep my children. I'm going through a divorce. Um, you know, my home life has been turned upside down. I need to take on an additional job. Um, I had an, another student who lost a few friends, a few, so more than two friends in a semester to suicide. And so, you know, fell into a depression. And so the majority of what I'm hearing, and I'll be honest, I'll be honest, I thought, <laughs> I kind of had this preconceived notion that a lot of um, individuals who do not do well academically, and because again, me thinking back to my college years, it's, you know, due to partying and, you know, hanging out and just not taking school seriously. But with these very transparent conversations that I've been having with students, that's only a small percentage. You know, the great majority of them really are just dealing with real life circumstances and traumas and, you know, just having things go really wrong in their personal lives. I think that um, one of the great myths of higher education at any institution, this is not an MTC thing, is that students leave their personal lives at the door at the classroom door, right? And you know, we, you check it at the door, all of your baggage, whatever's going on, you come in and you are a focused student and you learn. And then when you're at home and it's study time, you shove everything aside and you focus on your work. Um, I I don't know these people. Um, I, I think that is a myth. Mm -hmm. uh, and and in your, your capacity, you have a, a rich background in focusing on how to negotiate very difficult moments for people. But faculty, most faculty are not trained in those kinds of moments and difficult negotiations. They have experience in it, but I think many of them would really appreciate more guidance in how to really do, get the best out of those really difficult conversations that are painful for the student and, and of great concern uh, for the professor. From your perspective as a counselor, what would you say to faculty or connected staff about helping students who are at risk of failing or are in failure and are suffering? So one of the things that I will say is, I think the beauty of that is you don't have to be an expert in that field. And that is why it's great that we have the ability to collaborate and that we have these other resources available on campus. Um, so what I would say, you know, to an individual, because of course, you know, you have the relationship with your students and they're going to come to you first. Um, so my advice to anyone is always to listen, you know, to really listen and be empathetic and be caring and supportive, but lean on us, you know, so, you know, let the students know, because a lot of them may not even know that we have um, counselors on staff. You know, right now we have, um, you know, counselors at Beltline and, Har and um, Airport Campus. So just letting them know, you know, hey, um, Claire, you know, I see that you've been, you know, missing a lot of classes and is everything OK? And once Claire says, well, you know, I'm dealing with a lot going on at home, you can simply you know, I mean, of course, if you listen to them, but, you know, I just want to let you know, we we have a counseling office here, um, you know, so if, if that's something that can help you or, you know, maybe you want to give them a call and schedule an appointment to go and talk to them and see if they can help you to navigate your personal issues. This is a really great question. Um, 
mean, faculty are puzzled about a situation or that they are quite worried about it. For example, that they do have a, a student that they think may be at risk of suicide or just they, they've become aware is really sort of laboring under a crushing burden in their um, in their life. Can faculty call the counseling center and consult a bit about what they could do? Absolutely. Absolutely. We are definitely here um, as a support and as a resource. So, um, and, you know, one of the things that I would I would give a spill, I guess, or, you know, every year um, when I was at the the um, public school and I would say, you know, don't try to assess an individual. Don't try to figure out, you know, what their thoughts really are. Give me a call you know, call the counseling office and let me talk to that individual. And I mean, same thing here. So there's a student and, you know, if that student is making any kind of, you know, suicidal comment or, you know, or if there's anything that you feel that, um, you know, that concerns you, absolutely, you can reach out. I actually had a call that came in. Someone was, um, I want to say doing, oh, from financial services. And they just made the comment when things didn't go well that they just didn't want to live. And that person actually gave us a call. And, um, you know, they talked to, we talked over the phone and we talked to that individual, um, my, you know, other counsel who's working in this office as well. We talked to that individual, gave them resources, you know, assess the situation. So we definitely, I mean, we absolutely are here as support. So not only to students, but we are here, you know, as a support for, you know, staff members as well. So if there's ever any, you know, questions, absolutely. I mean, we want you all to give us a call because we want to make sure that we, you know, are able to, to assist. You know, we're all one team. We're in different departments, but we're all one team. So I mean, we absolutely are here for, um, you know, for collaborating and consulting with anyone. I'm so glad you said that because I feel like there are many times in our professional life where we ask ourselves, what is my role? What should I do at this moment? Should I reach out? If I do, who do I reach out to? And I think in academia, particularly, boundaries between students and faculty can be very fraught. As you know, it can be very risky when there is not a good boundary between a professor with power and a student without. Mm -hmm. But also, if you go too far the other way, if the boundary is too great, it's insurmountable and there's no connection and the things that need to happen don't happen. So I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about how you might offer some support to faculty who are, who are walking that line between how can I show compassion and also maintain, maintain some healthy, good boundaries? So when you're thinking about boundaries, that is always difficult because there's such a great area, you know, there really is no right or wrong. And for sure, it can be a slippery slope. And I would assume um, definitely at the college level, you know, being adults, um, things may get even more difficult or more tricky when it comes to building relationships and the closeness um, with students. But what I will say is just kind of for me, a general rule of thumb is always keeping in mind whatever my um, my job's policies and procedures are and just kind of working within that. So making sure that I'm supportive, but if there's something that a student needs and it's, you know, something that is not within our guidelines, just letting them know, you know, hey, I would love to help you with this, but, you know, we're not allowed to do X, Y, Z. Um, and then, you know, making referrals as much as possible to someone who can help them if it's something that's not really within my power. But I will say, you know, really just I think the biggest thing is being able to, you know, to listen to them and find out what they need. But, you know, having those clearly established boundaries 
um, I think is is going to be key. But, um, you know, for for staff members to also know that or to not fear getting, you know, close or helping the student to know that you can have a personal, you know, somewhat personal relationship that doesn't cross ethical boundaries, you know, so asking someone how they're doing, or if you know that a student has suffered, you know, um, some sort of loss, you know, for instance, you know, like what I shared, someone lost a relative that it's okay to reach out and say, hey, just want to know how you're doing or, you know, so that you can be proactive as well. You know, so if you know these things, reaching out to those students, just letting them know that you are human and that you are a part of their support system as well. But just keeping those, um, you know, those policies and 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 boundaries and things like that at the forefront as well. A great answer. Thank you. It, it, it can sometimes it's very obvious and sometimes it's delicate. Um, and that's something that, you know, we negotiate every day when we are willing to interact with other people. It's always complicated. Yes. Well, one of the, um, the reasons that we uh, have the podcast is to be able to share our perspectives more widely. And I would love for you to share your perspective in counseling with faculty and staff about what you see around student failure that they may not see because they have a different perspective. What in counseling uh, around failure can you offer some insight into for other people at the college? I think the main, one of the main things to let people know is that um, that individual who is experiencing academic failure for for us as staff members not to take it personally, you know, not to personalize that um, and look and just be supportive to that individual. When I say personalize it, meaning, you know, it doesn't mean that you are not a good professor, <laughs> you know, if your student is failing, you know, it's not a, a terrible reflection on you, you know, so to not take those kinds of things personally or, um, you know, you may have invested a lot of time and energy into the student, but to know that their failure really is personal and it's about them. And so to always keep in mind that we are here to support them because ultimately, you know, what they're going through is something that is traumatic. And so when I think about one of the courses um, that I teach with the nonviolent crisis intervention, it, it took me back to that. Um, and when we talk about, um, you know, not taking things personally and realizing that that individual is, you know, dealing with a crisis situation. So something similar here, you know, just to realize that I think if we are looking at the situation through the lens of this student needs help versus this student is doing something wrong, then I think we take more of a um, just an empathetic approach and really wanting to help them as opposed to saying, you know, saying or, you know, feeling that, oh, they don't care about their education or, you know, they don't really want to be here. They're, you know, all those uh, kind of, you know, sometimes preconceived notions that we have. I think that if we keep those things in the forefront, that this is an individual who needs our help um, in some capacity, then I think we can look at it from a different lens and take a different approach. That's a wonderful perspective um, to remember that the student's failure is their own. And I don't mean that in a chilly, blaming way, but to say, the faculty member can only take their part of the responsibility on mm -hmm. not all of the rich circumstances that are around a student and to continue to find that uniqueness, that individual reason for failure, that failure is, it's both so common, but it's also completely unique. When it's happening to someone, it's such a, a particular individual circumstance and, and so many things have gone into this moment arriving. And I think one of the things that's really hard for students um, or, or really anyone who's experiencing failure is to think into the future. 
when you're in the middle of failure, you you can't think ahead. You you feel like you know everything is over forever. Everything is ruined mm-hmm. uh, because of this failure. There's I can't you know whatever it is is not going to happen. Um, and it's so hard to imagine moving forward. But you know I've heard you say that failure is a semicolon. I'd love for you to describe what you mean by that, and then talk about how maybe we could help students eventually arrive at this understanding. So when I made that statement, and it was something that really just popped in my head as we were talking, um, because like you said, a lot of times when that happens, we, and I say we, because I've been there, feel like, oh my God, like this is it. Like, you know, this is over. I can remember thinking um, when I was not doing so well in a particular program um, when I first started college, just thinking like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to graduate and I'm not going to reach any of my goals. And, you know, things are just over, but not realizing it's, it's not a period. It's not that things have ended. It's we're going to pause and then we're going to regroup and do something different. You know, it's not the end of the world. Um, and another thing that I thought about just today when I was thinking about failure is that we have to realize that just because we fail at something, it doesn't define us. So it doesn't mean that you are a failure. You have experienced a failure. You have failed at something. And that, I mean, that's something that everybody's going to experience in one capacity or another, but it doesn't have to define you. And it doesn't mean that things are over. Um, I've seen that happen. I uh, met with a student recently and this student was just really heartbroken, heartbroken because she no longer qualified um, for nursing. And she just thought, oh, my God, like everything, this is just over. And then I said, "Okay, so. This, right, like your journey to becoming a nurse may be paused right now, or it may be over, right? Like you may, but let's take a look at what some of your other options are. What else would you like to do? And then she realized it wasn't that she just necessarily wanted to be a nurse. She wanted to help people. She wanted to work in the medical field, but the duties of a nurse day in and day out weren't even what she really wanted to do. She wanted to do something else. And lo and behold, she qualified for that. But in that moment, feeling, oh, my God, I failed, things are over. She couldn't see past that and couldn't, you know, look at other, um, you know, other options. And so what she realized is, again, it's not that things are, you know, things are not over. It's just that you're being redirected and it's okay. It's okay. I want to talk a little bit about that that moment, that pause, when the person who's experienced failure has to decide what to do next. Because that's what a semicolon is, right? It's a strong pause. Yes. <laughs> because what this reminds me of, and this is one of my big questions for this season, is that failure brings loss, right? When you fail Mm -hmm. something, you've lost an opportunity. It might be temporary and small. It might be permanent. It might be really big. But with loss comes grief. Mm -hmm. And grief is such a distinctive human emotion and experience. Uh, And I'd love for you to say just a little bit about from your perspective um, within your profession, what do you understand about grief and its effect on people. So grief is one of those things, I think, first and foremost, I don't think that people realize that grief is more than death. So when people think about grief and loss, they tend to think about a person who has passed away, but not realizing that there are other um, forms of grief. And so um, when I took a look at, I'll just go into a little bit of kind of like my own story a little bit and how I I looked at, realized that I was grieving and and had to uh, work my way through it. I had a view of becoming an attorney. 
And so I thought that that is what I wanted to do. And I, I had what I thought were the right reasons for becoming an attorney. You know, I wanted to be successful and I wanted to be financially stable. And I wanted to have a job where I felt that I could help people. And, you know, I can be a defense attorney and I can really help people. And then when I realized that that path was just not going to work, I found myself feeling like a failure. Um, and so the grieving part of it was I have lost this, I guess, a part of what I thought my reality was going to be. So I had to grieve the fact that this picture that I had of myself you know, being um, in a courtroom, right? Like that's lost. That's not going to happen. I'm not going to law school. That's not going to happen. And so it was a loss. Um, overwhelming for sure. Sometimes, you know, can be debilitating. Grief, it, it, it comes and goes, right? So, you know, one moment you're able to deal with it and then other moments, you know, as I was seeing maybe some other people living out those dreams and going to law school and, I started feeling things all over again. But what I realized was, um, I mean, I just had to, to regroup. And then I realized that I can, I can help people in other fields. I can help people in other fields. I can be successful in other ways. I can feel just as proud of myself and make my family proud doing something else. And now I realize that really wasn't the path I wanted to take. But I mean, the grief from it really was real because it did feel, you know, as if I've lost something, I lost an opportunity, I lost, um, you know, again, something that I, I thought was attainable. So it, it definitely is a very real experience. Um, and I'm glad that you brought that up because I don't think oftentimes people would connect the the parallels between grieving and academic failure, for sure. I'm so glad that you said that um, when we use the word grief, people almost 100% of the time, of course, think of the grief of death, around death, um, because that is so implacable and unfixable. When someone dies, that there's nothing to be done. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are many other kinds of grief, and I'm becoming really interested in how on earth we could define educational grief. Because as you were talking so well about your grief over not being able to become an attorney, it struck me that you were grieving an identity. You yeah. had imagined that you were the kind of person that could be an attorney. And it turned out that you weren't, in fact, a person who was going to be an attorney. Mm -hmm. That possibility was lost to you. And so it sounds like to me, maybe as we begin to fumble around and try to define educational grief, maybe part of it is people have to see themselves differently. They don't get to see themselves any longer in the way they imagine themselves as the person who would be an engineer mm -hmm. or a nurse. And suddenly it looks like that that may not happen or in some cases shouldn't happen. They don't actually want to do it. Yes. So what 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 does that tell us about grieving an identity, a possible identity? What it tells me is, um, and I'm a person who tries to find the positive in everything. And so what it tells me is that the beauty in it is that even when we fail, I think we learn. I think we discover things about ourselves that we didn't know. <laughs> um, I think sometimes it causes us to dream again. <laughs> it, it causes us to assess, you know, where we are and what we really want. Um, it causes us to, to shift. Um, it causes us to grow. Because again, in order for you to, um, you know, to overcome that, I guess that state of fail failure, you know, you're going to have to learn new skills. So whether it's new coping skills or, you know, how you apply things. So I think the beauty in it is that you're able to grow. And I think that you ultimately, even though it's not the way that we want it to happen, I think it allows us to be right where we need to be 
um, and and learn some things again about ourselves, um, maybe that we didn't already know. Failure is a part of learning, and that's something that is can be very painful or confusing to students. But perhaps if we're able to normalize that, yes, to say everyone. I mean, it's it's easy to say everybody fails, but then perhaps you've made this move when you say, "Well, I've been there. I also had a dream, and it didn't work out for me." But as you just said, it led me to a new dream. It led me to a new vision of myself that was very interesting and very intriguing. Mm-hmm. In a way, perhaps that the first dream, you know, it, it wasn't strong enough to carry us us forward. Yes, I can um, tell you that um, in meeting with students, a lot of times I notice a difference in their demeanor. And, um, you know, when they come in, sometimes um, when they are on academic suspension, it's almost like sometimes I've seen some of them, you can tell who are embarrassed. And they begin the conversation being apologetic as if they've done something to me, you know, by, um, you know, by failing courses. And they also, you know, sometimes really, really try to explain because I don't think they feel that somebody, you know, obviously who has graduated from college, they don't think that I understand, you know, where they've been. And so I noticed a whole different shift when I say to them or start to share, and I don't always, you know, get onto that topic, but for some students, I feel like it's, it's really helpful. But when I say to them, it will be okay. You know, I know you'll come back and I know you'll be successful because this is what works for me. And then it's almost like a sigh of relief, (laughs) you know, it's like, seems like they can breathe. It's like, oh, so you've been here or, you know, you understand or, you know, just letting them know that while I'm not saying that um, it is okay in the sense that, you know, you should just accept failure and just know that it's the inevitable, no, but if you find yourself in a situation where you are not doing as well as you like, just to know again that it is not the end. It's not the end. You can recover, right? Like it's it's not a permanent place. Failure is not a permanent place and it's not a definition. You are not a failure. You just have been unsuccessful. And I honestly don't like the word failure. Like I know it exists, <laughs> But, you know, when I'm talking to students, you know, I like to to even say it a little bit differently because it's almost like the connotation, you know, behind it to say, oh, yeah, you know, well, you flunked out. Well, that's no, that doesn't, you know, it's different or, yeah, you know, you failed. But, OK, you you had an unsuccessful semester. You know, you you weren't successful or your your grades weren't where they need to be to be in good academic standing, but <laughs> what can we do to get you back on track? So again, just the, even the stigma around failure, it's like I said, I, I know the feeling. It's such a powerful one. And it, I think it is one of those emotions that feels so permanent. Mm-hmm. It feels so permanent um, because it it takes so much energy to try to imagine the next thing. And so I wonder, one of the big um, concerns I know that a lot of very caring, connected faculty have at the college is we have some really great services, academic and non-academic supports. And we really don't see the numbers of students taking advantage of those services who could really be helped by all of the different, because we've got so many, right? Um, So I'll ask you, in counseling, do you have any wisdom on things faculty could do to um, better connect students to counseling? So because I'm fairly new, um, like I said, I came in February. It's difficult for me to say because I don't know what they're already doing. Um, But what I will say is there was um, one individual who was a department chair and actually came over to our office and just 
you know, asked to speak with us about what our services look like. And, you know, she was just letting us know that her program tends to be pretty rigorous and, you know, that she could see potentially where students may need some support or need someone to talk to, things like that. And so um, I know one of the things that she did was let her students know and like put it in the syllabus that we are a resource. And so I said, I think that would be great. Um, or even, so I think that definitely would be ideal because a lot of students may not even know that we exist. And I will say, especially um, for those students who are coming fresh out of high school, when you think about the counseling office, a lot of times they think of us as like who the academic advisors are because all they really, and I'm not going to say all, but the majority of the time that they spent in a counseling office is talking about getting ready for college. My transcripts, my grades, my GPA. And it wasn't a lot of the personal things. And I don't, so I don't think that people are aware of who we are and what we do. So I think definitely, you know, maybe just having having that be a part of the conversation, you know, however, when professors may talk about, you know, the academic success center is here and here's how you access tutoring, just to put a plug in and say, um, you know, another support that we have is our counseling office who is, you know, available, you know, five days a week. <laughs> and you are, you know, you're able to speak with a counselor for any personal issues that you may be having. So just to increase that awareness, I think would be huge. I agree. And and I feel like so the first thing is is they have to know that you're there. And then the next thing would be to normalize it. Uh, when I was talking to Trey Mothkovich in the last season about the Academic Success Center, he said, you know. I would really love it if we could change the language we talk about when we talk about tut you know, tutoring. Um, instead of saying, I have to go to tutoring, mm -hmm. to say, I get to go to tutoring. Yes. Uh, it's it's an advantage. It's something really great. And because, you know, inevitably, when students actually manage to get to the door into the ad academic success center, it's a great experience. They just revolutionize. There's so much help they get. And they really like the tutors. And they see that this is this is a really great supportive service. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if, if that might not be the same kind of thing we might hope for counseling. Not that, you know, oh, my gosh, I have to go to counseling or I should go to counseling. But right. I get to go to counseling. I get to take advantage of this really supportive, special opportunity to just focus because our students are so busy, right? I mean, how many of them don't have the luxury of just, you know, spend, taking an hour just to focus on their own mental health? So I'm, a, I'm huge on, you know, language and just the connotation of things. So like you said, you know, changing that narrative or, you know, even the way that it's presented, because I can, again, think back. Um, you know, sometimes the way it may have been presented to students, you know, K-12 and, you know, oh, you're doing this. You need to see a counselor. You need to, as opposed to, you know, would you like to talk to this person? Hey, you know, this, this person's here to, you know, to help you, um, you know, so that individuals don't feel like, you know, like you said, even, you know, with tutoring, it's not that I'm not good at a subject, but it's that I can, you know, meet with someone and get, additional, you know, support <laughs> versus, you know, you're not doing well, you need tutoring. So like you said, the same thing with counseling, it doesn't to take that stigma away. So it doesn't mean that anything is wrong with you. Um, and so even when I'm talking to, you know, my students, when I do get a chance to meet with them during the suspension process, I'll say to them like, hey, just let you know that, you know, I'm a support, like, I would love for you to check in with me, you know, throughout and just, you know, see how things are going. And, you know, we can brainstorm together. So it doesn't feel as much like, uh, you know, um, a negative experience because it's not, like you said, once they get there, they realize, oh, I wish I had done this sooner. But just for them to know, <laughs> you know, what it's all about and what it's, you know, how, how it's going to be beneficial for them and that it's nothing wrong with taking advantage of those resources. I've been so glad to talk today with you about failure because I find that um, higher education anywhere, at any institution, would just really rather not talk about it. Um, you know, they, and you said earlier, you're not so crazy about the word failure or F. That's built in. 
to the language of higher education. F is a grade. Fail and failure are words that we we have to use. They're procedural words, right? Mm -hmm. We have to. So I'm wondering from your perspective, what do you see as a benefit of talking more and more openly about failure as a part of life and learning here at college? So I think it's I think it's beneficial, you know, definitely to talk about it so that students will understand from faculty and staff standpoint how we view failure. Um, you know, because like I said earlier, sometimes it's that when we are in that in that space, <laughs> we project those, you know, thoughts about ourselves onto what we think faculty and staff are thinking. And, you know, just so again, having that open dialogue to let students know that it's okay. We're going to help you recover from it. We're going to help you get through this. Um, but you have to, you have to have that conversation so that they will know that it's okay. You know, they won't think that it's just the answer is, um, I'm just going to drop out because college is not for me. You know, when you are, again, K-12, you have no choice really but to go. <laughs> so you're going to keep pushing through. But a lot of people, and I, I mean, I can think of people that I've known personally who will say, oh, college was hard. It just wasn't for me, but didn't, you know, really take advantage of those supports. So again, when you're having those conversations about failure or even, you know, adding on not just failure, but when you are having any sort of difficulty that it's okay, come to us, let us support you, right? Like don't run away from it. Don't feel embarrassed. Know that we are here to support you. And so that it's okay. It's okay, right? It doesn't define you. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be here. It, it doesn't mean that we don't want you here. We want to help you. But you do have to have that conversation about failure so that they, they don't feel like they're on an island alone and they need to jump ship. <laughs> you know, they'll know that it, it's okay. And you have a great support system because like you said it here at Midland State we have lots and lots and lots of resources so yeah that's my thought on that any final thoughts on failure as a part of life a part of learning a part of college I guess just my final thoughts on that are just again knowing that failure happens it can happen you know, on a small scale is, you know, not doing so well on one assignment all the way up to academic suspension. But again, just knowing that it is not the end. Failure is not the end and it does not define you. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to share your perspective with with the rest of our instructional community. It's it's really great to, to be connected. Thank you so much for having me. This this is amazing. And I'm, I'm glad to be a part of this conversation. What a wonderful guide Centrell has been for us. She reminds us that the feeling of failure is a feeling of crisis. It stops the clock, makes it hard for people to imagine a future beyond the moment. It can bring shame and guilt and can cause us to project onto others what we ourselves are feeling. Failure uncouples us from the future, or maybe more accurately, it uncouples us from the ability to perceive a future, a future different from the one we had expected. And here, Centrell points us in a very important direction in our season. She allows us to begin to consider the loss failure brings that can be considered a loss of identity. When we embark on an education, we have goals that are tied to our notions of self. We think of ourselves as a person who is or will be a specific kind of person through our action and work. This might be a major or a career path or simply someone who succeeds at school. So when things don't go as planned, we have a loss of understanding of ourself, and that brings grief. A very important beginning as we ask one of our guiding questions for the season about the place for loss and grief in higher education. 
Because this tells us that grief is indeed a common experience in higher education. When failure arrives, grief is its faithful shadow. Centrell's perspective also reminds us of a fundamental truth. If the root cause of failure isn't addressed, then the outcome will likely remain the same, no matter how many attempts are made. For things to be different, they have to be different. So the question becomes, in each individual situation, what needs to change? And then we must ask, how can that change? By asking those questions, finding answers and taking action, then we may come to the true change that allows success in a new way. Otherwise, how can we expect different outcomes? I hope this conversation has opened up some insights, just as it's opened up possibilities to connect with our Counseling Services office. Centrell and her colleagues are ready to connect with students and also faculty and staff around the emotion of failure, as well as all other mental health-related experiences students may encounter. Next time, we'll have the first of our failure stories for the season. Professor Elena Martinez-Vidal will tell a story of a presentation she made as a graduate student that fell far, far short of what she and others expected. We'll hear her story and talk about what it means to have your failure witnessed by those you respect professionally and personally. We'll see how she encompassed it at the time and how it's become a part of her history and success. Join me next time, deeper into the darkness of fall and further into the web of our community.